Montana was invaded last summer. Not by land, not by air, but by water. A microscopic alien showed up in water samples from the Tiber Reservoir, a popular fishing spot north of Great Falls. Under the microscope, the invader looked like a tiny glowing X. These X's are the beginnings of baby mussels. They glow when light from the microscope catches on calcium crystals in their shells. But these tiny baby mussels aren't supposed to be here. They're alien invaders from the other side of the Atlantic Ocean. On their own, each mussel is pretty small, but collectively, they can change the water and the way we use it forever. Last summer, glowing X's lit up multiple samples from Tiber, then a few from Canyon Ferry Reservoir east of Helena, and then a few more downstream in the Missouri River. These invaders are two species of invasive mollusks, zebra and quagga mussels. You know, if this is something that's gonna be happening to your area, it could be devastating. Things are changing, and, and the dynamic of the lake is changing too, and I feel like it's not going to ever be the same way again. I still like Lake Michigan and Lake Huron, but the mussels have spoiled it just a little bit for me. You know, the challenge we run into is convincing people that this is a real, a real threat. This is Subsurface, resisting Montana's underwater invaders. I'm Nikki Wallette, and in our first episode, I'm taking us back east to lakes where people have been fighting the mussels for decades to hear, see, and smell what could become Montana's mussel-encrusted future if a full-blown infestation happens here. These stories are reporting from the future. Lake Winnebago. Hi, are you Matt? Oshkosh, Wisconsin. I'm Nikki. Matt Hipsch's lawn runs straight into Lake Winnebago. He finally has his dream home, right on the water with a little natural harbor for his boat. This is my part of the harbor here, and my neighbor shares it on that side. He's at the point in life where he can relax and really enjoy it. His kids are grown, his ceramic tile business is going well. But a few years ago, he started losing his little harbor. That was five feet deep, and you can see it's about two feet above the surface of the water, and it's 100% deep zebra mussels. Piled in the water, spilling onto Matt's shoreline, are thousands they're, they're and thousands and thousands you know, of shells of the dead bivalves. And this is what I just scooped up with my tractor. And as you can see, you can stand on it. This is all hard in It's funky. He hops up onto a trailer behind his pickup, brimming with them, oozing with the stench of salty, dead muscle flesh. It's just so many muscles. It is, it is. It snuck up on us. I mean, we never had any problems until um, one year we had a, a bunch come in and we filled a 40-yard construction dumpster. And we did it all by hand with just relatives and family members because we thought it was just a, a freak thing. Well, the next year, it, it just completely filled our whole harbor. And if you look at it, it's, I mean, we got a pretty good sized harbor. I used to be able to bring a 23-foot boat in here because it was five feet deep. 
No. He looks forlornly at his lost harbor. And the problem is, is you step on them and they'll cut your feet open. They're, they're like razor blades, and when you break them, it turns into more razor blades. And they just... And they just turn into more shards. We climb into his truck and drive across Oshkosh, trailing the reeking, <laughs> muscle-laden trailer behind us. I mean, it's got to the point where <laughs> I was just ready to go and say, I can't, I can't afford it anymore. I can't deal with it. There's nothing I can do. You can't fight Mother Nature. Matt shovels the mussels from his harbor every year, on his own time, his own dime. He said when the mussels started showing up in 2001, he called the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources to see if they could help. When you first went to the DNR, what did you expect them to do? I hope they could send somebody out to research where it was coming from. Nobody, nobody really knew. And basically they found out later that it was the reefs. It was coming off all these reefs out there. I'm like, well, there's no reefs by me. The nearest reef is pretty far away. And for them to come and fight the current because I'm in the mouth of a river and, you know, to come in, I thought maybe there was something strange going on. But they said, no, this is what's going to happen. And they never said it was going to get worse, but it did. The worst year was 2005. By the end of the season, Matt had spent $6,000 at the city landfill. He dumped four construction dumpsters worth of mussel shells that year. Gate. This year, a buddy is letting him dump the shells for free in a lot that needs some fill. Today is Matt's fifth trip. As you can see over here, there's one line that I dumped, and then another, and another one over there, and then I dumped another load over here. Later, his buddy will smooth the shells out, dump a little sand on top, and pave over them. They make for good road base, Matt says, as he punches the button to lift his hydraulic trailer, which he bought specifically for this reason. It's, it's not fun. Matt says the massive die-offs aren't as bad as they were for the first few years after the mussels first started showing up, and they make the water clearer. It's a weak silver lining, but that's all Matt has. He's resigned himself to the mussel's presence in his slice of paradise forever. You know, if this is something that's going to be happening to your area, it could be devastating. So in addition to losing his harbor, Matt Hipsch also noticed some other smaller problems caused by his mussel invaders. Their sharp shells cut up his feet, so he can't walk around barefoot on his shoreline anymore. His yard smells really bad, a mix between salty, rotting fish and moldy dirt. He also noticed that his lawn sprinkler stopped pumping water like it used to. When he took it apart to see what was up, he found tiny mussels packed so densely into the sprinkler head that almost no water was coming through. This same thing is happening on a much larger scale at water treatment facilities and hydropower dams that pull from infested lakes. Vadness Lake, St. Paul, Minnesota. Tom Longendike calls out commands inside a boxy cement building on the shore of Vadness Lake. He holds a big switch for a winch in one hand and straddles a six-inch slit in the floor. 
he and two other workers are pulling up door-sized metal mesh screens from the slit in the floor. This screen separates the water in Vadnus Lake from an underground 90-inch pipe, which will carry water from this gatehouse to a treatment plant eight miles away. Today, Tom and the others are pulling up the screens to check for blockages, bits of weeds, dead fish, and especially clumps of zebra mussels. Yeah, a lot of babies on this one, on the frame. Some are smaller than a grain of rice. Some are about the size of a dime, still small enough to pass through the mesh screen. The mussels cling to the screen's wires in dense clusters, piled one on top of the other. They look like black, globby cocoons the size of baseballs, jiggling at intervals along the metal screen. Tom carries the screen outside, steadies it with the toe of his boot, and scrapes the clusters off with a wire broom. Well, we find, I don't know, the broom works pretty good for us. But us are really bad, then we have to wash both sides when they get the babies, because they'll hang on or they're like glitter. Tom works at the St. Paul Regional Water Service, a water drinking plant for about 400,000 people in and around St. Paul. A few years ago, zebra mussels invaded Vadnus Lake, one of the main water supplies for the Regional Water Service. Ever since, Tom's crew has been reassigned from caring for the region's watershed to just cleaning up the mussels. Mike Knudsen is Tom's boss at the water service. He says this time of year, the tail end of summer, is dedicated to scraping mussels off the intake screens and pipes. So maybe we would do it maybe three times a year, and now we do it four times a week. Sometimes they'll pull up the screens and find a layer of mussels six inches thick, blocking water flow almost entirely. This is a pretty big thing for us, very time consuming. We spend a lot of, lot of man hours doing this work. Those man hours add up. Mike estimates dealing with the mussels costs St. Paul Regional Water Service about $150,000 a year. The worst part is that every winter, Mike needs to send his guys underground, down into the pipes themselves, to scrape dead mussels from the two tubes that lead to the treatment plant. It's almost like uh, shoveling an endless sidewalk full of snow. It's like because it's dark down, obviously, in a pipe, so you. You have a headlamp on, you have some other lights on there, but you can't see too far, but it's just every step you take, it's more muscles, more muscles, more muscles. It's just like it never ends. So it's kind of hard on going into the dark, working in the dark every single day at an endless task that smells. His guys wear full-body protective suits and respirators. They wade through dead muscles piled knee-deep and reach up overhead to scrape still-attached muscles from the top of the pipe. One of the pipes is only 60 inches tall, so the guys have to crouch a bit as they cart dead shells with wheelbarrows to access shafts where an industrial vacuum sucks the shells up for disposal. It's hot, it's dark, and Mike says it smells like a pig farm mixed with ammonia. At this point, crewman Tom Longendike says he doesn't even notice anymore. <laughs> I can't smell nothing, so it don't bother me. Seriously, it don't really bother me that bad. I mean, this, this is yeah, pretty rank. Oh, this ain't nothing. <laughs> we'll bring it to the dump. You want to smell some? Tom's day job may return to normal, and soon. His boss, Mike Knutson, says the regional water service is trying out a muscle-killing chemical called EarthTech QZ. 2016 was, our, was the pilot project, and uh, so we had zero muscles, basically zero show up on our screens throughout the summer, and then that line we did not have to clean last winter. 
when we went in there to inspect it, there was zero in there. EarthTech QZ is a copper-based treatment that holds some promise for stemming a muscle invasion, but it's never knocked out all the muscles out of an entire lake. So far, it's only worked in really small, contained systems, like a single water intake pipe. And for it to keep working, the St. Paul Regional Water Service will need to keep paying for and using it forever. We'll talk about EarthTech and some other potential fixes in later episodes. So for now, just know that so far, it's been keeping muscles out of the one intake pipe Mike has tried it on. He hopes to expand next year and use EarthTech on the second pipe. He says scientists are making progress, and he's hopeful. Their findings from their research is helping them quite a bit, so I, I think they're on the right track. I know that if you read uh, in the papers or listen on the news, it all sounds like gloom and doom, but I, I, I don't. I, th I think they're on the right track. Until then, though, his guys will continue to spend their days scraping muscles away with brooms and shovels. It's hard to estimate exactly how much money has been spent cleaning out zebra and quagga mussels. But one study by the U.S. Geological Survey pegs the cost of dealing with the mussels in Great Lakes states in the 1990s at $3.1 billion. That number doesn't even account for people like Matt Hipsch dealing with the infestation on their own. But the mussels don't confine their damage to just your wallet. They're capable of changing entire lake ecosystems in ways we're still trying to understand. We're going to take a quick break, but when we return, we'll head underwater to see what the mussels are up to down there. That's coming up when Subsurface returns. This is Subsurface, Resisting Montana's Underwater Invaders, a podcast from Montana Public Radio. We're in the middle of episode one, Reporting from the Future. Stay tuned for more episodes and check out pictures and video from Nikki's trip to the Great Lakes on our website, mtpr.org. Not all of the impacts of a muscle invasion are easy to predict. Coming up, we'll literally dive into one of the Great Lakes to get a clear look at one unexpected outcome of the mussel's presence. This is Subsurface, the story of resisting Montana's underwater invaders. I'm Nikki Willette. Before the break, we heard about the clearly negative impacts of zebra and quagga mussel infestations. But not everyone sees invasive mussels as a wholly destructive presence. In fact, a lot of people see the bivalves as a big plus. As filter feeders, they can make the water clearer. That newfound clarity is especially pronounced in the Great Lakes, where mussels have been happily sucking phytoplankton and algae out of the water column for almost 30 years. Just push this, can you push this turn off a little? Oh, perfect. Yep. Lake Michigan. We have Nikki. Sheboygan, Wisconsin. Yitka Hanakova is a professional scuba diver. Okay, I gotta navigate. She leads charter tours of shipwrecks that dot the bottom of the Great Lakes. In Lake Michigan, there are known, discovered, oh, 
uh, I think hundreds at least. Today, she and five friends are headed down to see two wrecks, a car ferry called the Silver Lake. It carried lumber and it was struck right in the midship on the port side, so it actually explains the collision there. It was hit by a railroad car ferry. And a twin-masted schooner called the Walter B. Allen. It's a little bigger than the last one, built in 1866. It sunk in a bad storm in April 1880. No lives were lost on this one. It's gonna be, it's gonna be really neat to see. And a bunch of zebra mussels covering it, unfortunately. Zebra mussels invaded Lake Michigan in 1993, and quagga mussels moved in a few years later. Yitka says their presence has been both good and bad for diving. A big negative is Yitka is not able to see nuances in the wreck because there are so many mussels covering it up. If the wrecks weren't covered by mussels, I would be seeing details such as dead eyes, pulleys, really clearly visible. Some of, some of the schooners actually have figureheads, and those get covered up too. And you lose all the detail of the figurehead, whatever it was supposed to symbolize at that time. So that's unfortunate. We don't see the details, but we see the whole ship. Seeing the whole ship at once is a big deal. These shipwrecks are 200 feet underwater. Until the mussels cleared up Lake Michigan, light couldn't penetrate that far down. So you'd arrive at the wreck and rely entirely on a flashlight beam as you moved around the ghost ship. It was spooky. Back in 20 years ago, you'd have to literally go down to the deck and maybe see 10 feet in front of you, 15, muddy, murky, brown water. Yitka says divers today in the clearer water aren't so intimidated, and that's been really good for her business. It probably increased my business, just because the water is clear and divers can see more, they are more comfortable going down. It more reminds them of the Caribbean, minus the warm water, of course, and minus all the tropical fish. But we have really cool wrecks that people can now see. They can see a lot more of it at, at one point. It's not as disorienting as it was. So I, I would say overall it actually did have a positive impact on the diving community, for sure. Still, Yitka says she'd prefer if the mussels weren't here. They pose some challenges for boaters because the mussels can get inside the engine and clog it up. She has to be careful not to tear her gear on the mussels' sharp shells. And now that the light can reach deeper into the water, she's started to notice algal blooms, which sometimes can make people really sick, that she didn't see down there before. As a result, she's trying to dive more in Lake Superior, even though it's much colder and darker because it's so deep, just so she can see the tiny details in the ship. I still like Lake Michigan and Lake Huron, but the mussels have spoiled it just a little bit for me. The divers say all this clarity, the ability to see the whole ship in one go, is because of the mussels. But diver Leo Cortulo says ultimately the mussels aren't worth the visibility. But one of my biggest issues with the mussels is that it's, it's destroying the wrecks, even though it's preserving them at the same time. What do you mean? Because the mussels keep it, the surface protected, but as they build, the weight collapses the wreck. So like the car ferry out here is completely collapsing massively because there's so much weight from the mussels on it, it's just destroying, it's dropping decks. So eventually, what's preserving it is actually going to destroy it completely. A shipwreck collapse would be a dramatic illustration of the mussel's impact. 
but the muscles are already causing collapses on smaller scales. Chuck Medengian has studied fish populations for decades in the Great Lakes for the U.S. Geological Survey in Ann Arbor, Michigan. He says scientists threw out all kinds of predictions when the mussels first arrived in the Great Lakes in 1993, everything from they'll have no effect to they'll cause the entire food chain to collapse. So I I wasn't quite sure what exactly was going to happen, but I didn't think, I wasn't expecting all of the fisheries to just undergo a dramatic decrease in importance. Let me back up a minute. Zebra and quagga mussels are pretty small so they can only eat the teeniest, tiniest animals in the lake. A lot of people thought that if the mussels were eating these teeny, tiny phytoplankton, zooplankton, and algae, the small fish that also like to eat these teeny, tiny planktons, they would also die because the mussels were eating all their food. Without the small fish, bigger fish like lake trout and Chinook salmon would also die. People expected a food chain collapse from the bottom up in lakes where mussels invaded. But Chuck says this is not what he's seeing in Lake Michigan. You know, I guess you can call the muscle changes profound, but it's on the other hand, you don't you don't see a, a complete extirpation of the of the predators. The, the predators seem to be doing okay in 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 the systems, even with the muscles well established and have, having been there for uh, ten years or, or more. Coming on 20. Instead, Chuck, who's a research fisheries biologist, is noticing subtler, more nuanced changes in Lake Michigan's food chain. They are causing a, a lot of changes throughout the web, uh, especially in the lower part of the food web. I think that's where the, the, the most profound changes are going on with the mussels. For example, one of the most basic food sources in the lake, a tiny crustacean, was almost knocked out about the same time the mussels invaded. That loss does affect smaller fish, because now, with less of their favorite food, it takes them longer to plump up, and they don't grow as big as they used to. That means bigger fish need to eat more of them to stay healthy, which means more work, so the big fish aren't quite as healthy as they were before the mussels invaded. Chuck says it's all interconnected in ways we don't fully understand yet. Of course, some some people may argue that it's still too early to make judgments on on what's been affected by muscles and what hasn't. We'll come back to some of these ideas in a later episode when we talk with some fishermen and visit a lake that has seen some pretty nasty impacts from muscles. But to recap, we can say for certain that muscles make the water clearer, they alter the food web in ways we don't fully understand, and those changes will continue as long as the muscles are there, which is likely forever. So the muscles can hit your wallet. They can leave you scraped up. Some people have even needed stitches after they jumped into shallow water and bottomed out on muscle-encrusted rocks. Zebras and quaggas can run up your water bill. They'll tweak the food chain. But for a lot of the people I talked to in the Midwest, the real impacts of these tiny mollusks was much less tangible. Lake livers there, like in Montana, feel a strong connection to their water a responsibility to preserve it in its most natural and purest form. That's how Tom and Jane Watson feel. Big Trout Lake. Well, you got a beautiful day. Yeah, Cross Lake, Minnesota. Some of the migrators. Tom Watson remembers the first time he found zebra mussels in Big Trout Lake, one of the northernmost lakes in the whitefish chain of lakes, no relation to whitefish Montana, 
He was moving docks. And it was on that particular ladder over there. It was the fall of 2016. All the lakes in the area already had adult infestations of zebra mussels. And he knew that there were baby mussels, called villagers, in his lake. That didn't make it any easier when he pulled that ladder up. It felt like the shoreline had been raped. Tom knows that's dramatic, but he was shocked. Because you had, we had done everything we could possibly do. I mean, we, we clean boats, we power wash boats. Our boats go from this lake to that axis, which is about two miles down here, and to a storage building a mile up the road and back into here. That's it. Tom has a pretty good idea of how the mussels made their way into Big Trout Lake. He says, and scientists and managers agree, that humans move the mussels from one infested lake to another in water left over in the boat's ballasts or live wells. These mussels only need a little bit of water to make it from one lake to another. A forgotten tank in a boat pulled on a trailer can be enough to ferry them alive into a new lake. Tom knew that visiting boats are the ones most likely to carry invasive hitchhikers. So he made a big deal about cleaning out his own boats and telling guests and neighbors what they could do to prevent the mussels spread. He also worked with his local lake association to spread the word. Still, zebra mussels found their way into Big Trout Lake. You know, the challenge we run into is convincing people that this is a real, a real threat. Tom makes his case with economics. He says invasive species in general can deter people from recreating in a certain body of water, and they can cause property values to dip. That's a big deal in his area, where the local economy relies on summer lake tourists. You got the third microeconomic center in Minnesota. But really for Tom, the reason to keep the mussels out of the lake is just part of his worldview. I think we have an obligation to figure out what we're going to do about it. And, and, and so, you know, that's, it's just part of my DNA, I guess, is... Is what it is. As Tom and I talk on the breezy shoreline, his wife, Jane, meticulously studies the shallow waters. She comes over and hands Tom a frond of native northern water milfoil. And so on this little piece of plant material, which is probably, what, 10 inches long, I am counting one, two, and in that little cluster, there's probably about 10. And in this cluster, there's another 10. So there's probably 25 on this little section. What I should do is let you take this. I'd get fined $5,000 by the state of Montana. (laughs) Cross the border. (laughs) That's right. Jane says she used to walk this shoreline looking for agates. Now she's looking for zebra mussels. That's my zebra mussel graveyard. I figure if I throw enough up there, I'll be saving hundreds of millions of of, uh, zebra mussels. Well, just remember, for every two of them that are male and female, there could have been half a million villagers. I know. I'm, I'm making my own small contribution. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Jane's family has lived on this lake, on this exact stretch of shoreline, for three generations. She remembers her first mussel encounter, even before the dock ladder. Her daughter had found a few zebras attached to a rock. It made my heart break when she found that that zebra mussel, and then I knew there would be more. And then when Tom took out the ladder on the dock, the swim ladder, that had four or five on the bottom side of it. So it just, it broke our hearts last fall. We just knew they were here and they're going to be get, be getting worse before they get better. What, what about the mussels is it for you that, that makes your heart break? Because 
it's such a change. Things are changing, and and the dynamic of the lake is changing too. And I feel like it's not going to ever be the same way again. It's sad. It's just sad. I imagine we will learn to live with it. We will make accommodations. We will wear water shoes, and when it gets really bad, it's just a change. All we can do is keep this in a holding pattern as much as possible until science catches up. Science is catching up. Researchers are sequencing the zebra mussel genome. They're hoping DNA can help us understand how the mussels spread, allow us to find them sooner, and someday we may even be able to edit a bit of that DNA and wipe the mussels out altogether. That's what we'll focus on in the next episode of Subsurface, The Science of Spread. This episode was reported, written, and produced by me, Nikki Willette. Nora Sachs is our associate producer. Eric Whitney is our editor and executive producer. Josh Burnham is our web editor. Subsurface is a production of Montana Public Radio with financial support from the Solutions Journalism Network, a nonprofit organization dedicated to rigorous and compelling reporting about responses to social problems. Learn more at our website, mtpr.org.